Hey talkers, welcome, bienvenidos a Keep Talking Podcast. Keep Talking is the key to improving your English, la clave para mejorar tu inglés. You have to keep talking in English every day. Hablar en inglés todos los días. We apply the same principle to our podcast. That's why we have a Keep Talking Podcast episode every day. Un episodio todos los días. Listen every day and then go speak every day. Keep talking. Well, hello. Hello again. Um, guys, I know I haven't been doing podcasts for a long time. I think the last one was in September or October 2021. And, um, you know, I, I realized that I missed them quite a lot. So, um, you know, as a coincidence, we want one of uh, our team members is from, from Ukraine and she decided she uh, would like to share her view on the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict. So I have her on, and uh, I want to remind you guys why I do this. Uh, I just want to bring you the, um, a different perspective and also someone who, who is, well, to use English as a tool mostly, right? Uh, I, I want you always to think of keep talking as a method where we present to you English not as only a language, but as a tool to communicate between humans to understand uh, us better, to relate to whatever is happening in the world. So we see English as a tool for peace. And this is exactly what I, what I intend to do here with this conversation. Give us some perspective of you know, what people feel and think um, in Ukraine. So Natalie, great to have you with us. Hello, great to be here. All right. So uh, why don't we start with the context? Tell us uh, about you, your family, um, you know, and all of this. What makes you part of this conversation? <laughs> well, I guess I'll preface all of this with saying I was born in the States. Um, so I definitely don't represent all the views in Ukraine um, by any stretch of the imagination. But um, my family is from Ukraine um, and I've gotten to, and I have family in Ukraine currently, and I, I have gotten to visit them throughout my life and visit Ukraine throughout my life. And I've um, spent quite a bit of time there as an adult as well. Um, I guess those are my only qualifications for having <laughs> an opinion on Ukraine. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, what do you think of, of what's happening? Uh, what's your take on all on, on all of this? Before we we started this conversation, we're talking a little bit about um, how long the conflict has been going on. So, would you like to also give us a context on why your parents uh, went to live in the in the states? I guess it was the end of the Cold War, and you know, since that time, what has happened that you know of? Yeah, um, so yeah, my, my parents left in the um, 80s, so everyone kind of had that mass dysphoria, um, and they were a part of that. So, um, and it was that you just had limited opportunities everywhere, and um, anyone who could get out did, it seems like. Um, so my parents were able to go to the States and go to university, and um, 
I think that was the main motivation and they stayed. And since then, um, my aunt and her family has come over to the States and um, with a number of my cousins, which, which is really great for me. Um, but yeah, uh, that, was, that was why they came. Um, but my parents, and it doesn't, it never seemed like it was a choice of like, we're leaving Ukraine because we were, were separating ourselves from Ukraine. It was very much like, we're Ukrainian. And like anyone who'd visit my house as a child, it was like little Ukraine. <laughs> Um, and there's actually quite a strong community in the Midwest of um, Ukrainians. Um, we have we have a church and quite a few restaurants, and everyone stays pretty close knit. But um, but yeah, which is also why we'd get the Ukrainian newspaper. Um, we'd get uh, and uh, that was that allowed us to stay quite connected to things that were happening. Like the first thing that I really remember was. 2004 with the orange revolution which was as a kid like watching that all happen was one of the most exciting things ever um because it was this whole like ukraine's um has this like beacon of democracy and hope and is going to change its future and take control of its um government and economy and and finally make something of itself type of thing um which is a really hopeful moment. My parents were so excited about it. And it was, it was interesting to see that. And then that slowly kind of the hope from that kind of draining away and then um, picking up again when the um, Medan protests were happening in 2013 and then the full on overthrow of um, Yanukovych in 2014, which was also a really, a really intense time. Um, it was, yeah, not as intense as now, but that was that was very exciting. Also, to see once again um, felt more like like real change was going to happen. And then, of course, um, the Russian response to that was to go and invade Crimea and take Crimea, and then um, uh, have the separatist war in the east in the Donbas region, um, which has been going on till today. So while at the same time, Kyiv in Western Ukraine does has been headed in a very different direction, and while almost all Ukraine seems much more united because of this conflict, um, it is it's it's meshed with the fact that there's been a internal um, war that's been funded externally by Russia um, for the last eight years, and these people have been living through that, and it's quite terrible. Wow. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I feel yeah, like I yeah, just totally. went on a ramble there. <laughs> no, not at all. I think um, this is what it's about, right? Um, understanding, kind of trying to understand, you know, what has happened. And uh, also, you know, listening to what you have to say about it, because you're the one affected, right? Like if you were to ask me about Colombia, I will give you my view, um, you know, which is a little bit biased as well because I, I lived part of my life in the United States. So, um, you know, I, I guess we all have a story or parts of the story. And then. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's quite interesting to see, like, I know when I talk to my friends and stuff and they're like, obviously my view on this is very much colored by having grown up in the West and, um, and I was educated in Israel. And so I have 
like all of that pulls into me having a different perception on it um, than than my friends who are even like living in Kiev now, um, which is yeah, just just colors the whole the whole picture of everything, really. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you studying in Israel? Does uh, does did that have to do anything with uh, Judaism? Um, no. Um, not really actually <laughs> although ironically my family is from the largest um uh community the largest jewish community in europe like that's that's the region my my family's origins aside from my grandmother who is um um tartar which is from the south um which is muslim actually <laughs> so that is um so no except maybe there is an interest like a dormant interest there from from visiting those communities, possibly. Right. But. How did that happen? How did you end up um, studying your undergraduate in, in Israel? Uh, I, um, so I studied political science and international relations, and, um, and I wanted to do security and military and kind of that side of things. And I was either going on a very academic track, which was the London School of Economics and Political Science, or my alternative was a very practical track, which if you're going to study military, <laughs> there's not too many places like Israel um, to do that in. And I was also studying Arabic at the time. So I thought, like, good place to carry on my Arabic. Um, and it was also um, got to learn some Hebrew while I was there. And it was a lot more practical. So I'm quite glad I did that. All right. I think um, we, one of our, our partners here, I keep talking. I'm sure you've seen him on, on Instagram on the podcast. Sean, he actually speaks Arabic. I also think he lived oh, yeah. in the Middle East for, for a time. So I think he's going to be quite um, <laughs> keen to connect with you. And, oh, that's very cool. Yeah, maybe he will be listening to this. Yeah, it was actually like that, that experience I think quite colored my perceptions of Ukraine and Russia as a whole, because I was living there and studying this during the Syrian war. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember like Russia's involvement was, was really shocking to me then and being that close to it and watching all of that happen, which when Russia was invading Ukraine, knowing what they did in Syria was, is a lot more terrifying thinking about what they're going to do, like knowing what, how their practice, their practices before in other places and thinking that that's what they're going to do in Ukraine. And it seems, it seems very similar to okay. me actually. All right. Well, uh, let's go back to talking about, you know, the people that, you know, yeah. friends and family living there in, in Ukraine. Uh, what's the situation? Uh, um, so when I, I lived in Kiev and I have recently um, reached out to some of the people that I lived with and worked with and most of them right now, um, those who are staying there have kind of done a, a general silence thing for the most part. Like um, there are actually a lot of people were saying that, especially in some of the suburban areas and stuff, that they're trying not to put out too much information about what's going on. Um, that the government's actually asking them to, um, to be quiet about it so that they can control 
the information going out for security purposes and um, and just just that um, some of the people were saying like in some of the smaller regions, they don't want to bring more attention to those regions in case that promotes them for being targets, all of that. Um, that said, more information that I've heard has come out of in Lviv and like Western Ukraine, which hasn't had as much um, direct conflicts. They've been bombed a couple of times, but um, not as intensely as Kyiv. And um, or they're not as close. I guess Kiev hasn't been has only been bombed a bit, which is just a funny sentence to say. <laughs> but um, and hopefully, hopefully there's enough historic, there's enough reason to preserve Kiev that it doesn't it doesn't get hit like Mariupol or Kharkiv. Um, but anyway, um, so what I've heard from Lviv is is quite interesting. It sounds like the whole place has really come together and um, and everyone everyone is a part of everything like like um, lawyers and accountants coming in to um, to help cook for the um, I guess the territorial guard and um, and everyone helping there's you can go take classes on how to make Molotov cocktails and um, things like that. So it sounds sounds very unified from everything that I've heard. Um, but yeah, I also we've lost contact with with my family. Um, but I think this is normal. People are in and out, which is actually something um, I would like to say. Maybe I'll give you a link or something. But there's quite a good database or website, especially for people who've had parts of their families. Um, tried to flee the country um, and everyone's getting lost at the border. And I think it's quite confused. And there's a lot of Ukrainians going missing and having a difficult time making contact with their families and such. So um, um, a group that I found created a really, a really great system to try to, for people to put their information in and so that other, their family members can hopefully find them and stay in contact. Um, throughout all of this, so I know if anyone is looking for somebody, that that might be one of the better ways to do it. Well, you never know. You never know. We never know who's going to be listening to this, and um, you know, as it happens to be that you are Ukrainian, you know, uh, in a way working alongside a Colombian, offering this service <laughs> to you know Latin America and the world. Uh, you never know, you know, one of our listeners yeah. can have, you know, her boyfriend is Ukrainian, her girlfriend, you know, all these things that, that happen in this globalized world that we live in. Oh, there's actually quite interesting. Um, I just heard today out of all the countries that the um, uh, people have gone to volunteer in the um, international brigade in Ukraine. Um, Colombia was listed as one of the, was listed as having the most not the most, but it was on the list of like the top 15 or something. It, it made a notable mention for there was a lot of Colombians um, headed to Ukraine, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, I think, well, I, I'm surprised um, <laughs> in a way, but but also, yeah, that's interesting. I guess it has to do with our experience with such a violent conflict. And um, 
And maybe also the fact that we've had a bonanza, right, uh, which doesn't reflect in all spectrums or, or all areas of society here, but um, the, our middle class has been growing and we have a, a, a large and powerful um, high class. So I guess they can they can offer themselves up for volunteering. Um, yeah, in fact, I was reading recently uh, an amazing article that I recommend you to read. Perhaps you would like to write something about this one day. Uh, so it's a it's a take on a Colombian who worked for Peace Corps or for no medical medi- um, doctors without frontiers in yeah, yeah. Afghanistan. So she tells the story of you know, of a doctor living and understanding or trying to understand the culture. And so she gives um, a, a detail, right, a narration of the nuances of life there. So quite interesting. Yeah, no, that does sound very interesting. So um, I find this fascinating that today in the world that we live in with all the internet uh, access that we have everywhere there's still people in a way uh, being missed or going missing in these areas in these border border cross lines or, or how is that happening what's the information that you have and and how do ukrainian borders work alongside the i know belarus and so tell us about something yeah. well um it seems like not so many Ukrainians will be wanting to go to Russia or Belarus right now. But um, but yeah, I think the most popular border crossing has been obviously it was Poland um, and then and second Romania and then Moldova. Um, and as far as from I was actually just talking to um, a guy from Poland and he was telling me about the border there and was saying that there's there's so many people. Everyone there is who is helping is volunteers and NGOs that are doing it off their own, their own volition. And there are even people who are um, making the choice, like they're driving into Ukraine and picking people up and driving them back across the border and taking them to their home or taking them to, um, to shelters. I've also heard like in Moldova, um, which is also um, quite a poor country. So, considering these people don't have a huge amount to start with. Um, they're, they're just driving up and waiting at the border and um, taking people, um, refugees who are coming across and taking them, um, taking them in, which is quite amazing. Um, but the, the contrast to that I have heard is that um, although the governments, particularly Poland is taking credit for a lot of this, they're not actively helping organize things or arrange it. Most of the things that are happening um, are just done by, by yeah, um, non-state actors who are just trying to help. And, um, and on top of that, that leaves also this vacuum for a lot of criminality to be happening right now, um, which I think we're gonna hear more about post the, well, post this initial stage of the war, but um, I've heard accounts from um, NGO workers who are saying people are driving up and they're they're picking up people and then they're driving away and there are children who are coming across the border on their own as well. So that like the human trafficking is going to be out of this world for um, what's gonna come out of this, this crisis right now. Oh, one, 
one woman was reporting that she was at the border and a guy came up and actually requested to her. She was helping arrange transport with um, with refugees. He goes, I and he actually requested that he would like a single woman with two kids. <laughs> she was like, no, that's not how this works. Like, get out. But that that it also seems like there's there's no actual organization or regulation on such things. So this is happening on a kind of continuous. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Look, this is, you know, uh, this is exactly what I, why I wanted to have this discussion, right? This kind of perspective, we never think about these things and it gets underreported, mm. right? Of course, it's not a bomb. It's not yeah. destruction <laughs> happening in these buildings, um, but it's still very, very deep suffering, all these human, right? Um yeah. Would you like yeah. to expand on this? Um, I, I don't even know what else you say about that. Just, right, yeah. I, it, it's quite, I mean, human trafficking is, is always horrendous and bad. And this is such a, people are so vulnerable. And it's, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, mm -mm. Would you say that this happens because government of Ukraine does not have the resources to organize these logistics? Well, I feel like, oh, and I'm being biased here, I would say the government of Ukraine is um, has got its hands full. And um, I, I would say this is going to happen even if all of Europe has gotten its, um, not swearing on here, gotten its stuff together and had a procedure for this or had made an attempt to organize it, I, um, it would still be happening, but I'm sure they could cut down the scale of it to quite a degree if, um, if they had put more, I, I think maybe it's not even what they're doing now, it's just the, the preparation for something like this, which also speaks to the point of this conflict has been going on for eight years. Russia was sitting on the border with Ukraine for months. Like this is as much as we were all shocked by it. Like, like what is kind of like the pandemic? Like we always knew it was a possibility, and yet none of us really prepared for it. So I feel like that—that's where the failing was with that. It was very predictable, but we were all too busy. Yeah, I, I love this. You know, it's. We talk about the developed world and we talk about the emerging countries and the underdeveloped world and all of this, but then situations like this tell us that there is a lot still, many things to learn about the human condition and you know any situation like this. So um not sure if you if you watch the, the recent movie by Netflix, Don't Look Up. Yeah, actually I did, yes. Yeah, and you know, it's just yeah. Uh, right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah we yeah we we have time to prepare we if only right um if only we weren't as busy looking for the shocking news and if we've concentrated our, our attention on okay okay what's the next thing that we need to care about and how do we unite to respond and of course i mean poland and led lead from germany and france could be all over the place bringing Ukrainians 
um, just just as they you know would need to I guess do the same thing for you know, Iranians um, and Iraqis and Syrians and Afghanis, yeah. Yes, Yemenis, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that is a, a huge one. Or even now, the idea that we're going to have food shortages in all of those countries, particularly Yemen. And, and what's anybody doing about that? Um, this is a very interesting point that you talked about with Jose when I caught on the the conversation that you guys th you guys had through our interactions, and um, so. Uh, <laughs> but let's go back to to this one thing that I, I think also listeners are going to be quite interested on. As a, as a Ukrainian, would you like to talk about give us insight into dif cultural differences and similarities between Russians and your <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting um, idea. And I think, I think it's changed, actually, from what I understand, even over, particularly over the last eight years, I feel like there's been a massive shift in mentalities of what it is to be Russian and what it is to be Ukrainian in Ukraine, specifically. Um, and I, I know growing up, I saw it as very clear. Um, once again, my family is from Western Ukraine, um, which is very Western. So that's um, also they're more, they're, there's a difference with religion where Western Ukrainians, uh, for one, they just speak Ukrainian. All of them will understand, or most of them will understand Russian, but Ukrainian is by far predominantly used. Um, uh, religion, um, you're more likely to be Catholic, whereas um, further in the East and in the South, um, you're more likely to be Orthodox. Um, but this is, this is changing in the sense that um, like even the, so Orthodoxy was always Russian Orthodoxy and the patriarchy of Russian Orthodoxy sat in Russia. And there's actually this really interesting concept of symphonianism. I don't know if I said that right. Symphonianism. I'm going to bypass it. It's about the relationship between the Kremlin and um, the Orthodox Church, um, which is always um, quite tight, actually. Um, and there's this, there's definitely a political pull to, um, to being Russian Orthodox. Um, and now, over the last eight years, since Russia took Crimea and the um, conflict in the Donbass, have actually made a Ukrainian Orthodox Church and they kind of like recalled that where they can keep the traditions of Orthodoxy but not have their allegiance to the Kremlin or tied to the Kremlin in any way, um, which, is, which is a new development. Um, I'm getting sidetracked. These are not small cultural differences, but the church, it was, um, yeah, typically it was the Orthodoxy was more Russian and Catholicism is seen as more Ukrainian. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, I think, honestly, I think narratives are one of the biggest parts of the differences. Um, and the Ukrainians do see themselves like everyone, like the Slavs came from Kiev and Rus, but Ukrainians see themselves tied to different groups of that. Um, they both have um, ties to 
um, uh, <laughs> the Cossack fighters, the Cossack Cossack warriors. Um, like in Kyiv, you have um, statues of the Cossack warriors, and that scene is very Ukrainian in Ukraine. Um, I believe it's seen as an aspect of Russian heritage as well, but I'm not I'm not familiar about how how closely they're tied to that. Um, and the other the biggest aspects that I that I personally have participated in is different things like the traditional pisinke. Um, uh, it's uh, Ukrainian Easter eggs. It's actually um, comes down from like pagan practices that they've turned into Christian practices of um, decorating eggs. Um, just, uh, for my parents or family, at least, was really tied into um, Ukrainian culture. It's what you do, like if somebody, when somebody dies, you you make an egg and there's a bunch of the symbols that um, represent different aspects of their life or your hope for them for um, their afterlife. And you put that on their grave. Um, you do um, things like that and they're really beautiful and yeah I that was probably the closest my closest tie to Ukrainian culture was was making pisinke um yeah uh otherwise actual actual differences um I think they are both Slavic people and they do share a lot of a lot of history um but Ukrainians also do have a a massive history of revolting against um, attempts at control and um, um, and I wanted to call it patriarchy, but not that. But overriding rules from um, Russian seats of power, and they do have a, a long tradition of pushing towards the West, and um, they also have a long tradition of connecting with like Poland and. Um, Finland and stuff, as opposed to to just just going towards the east. Um, Why? So, so you'd say that? Um, do you think religion, those those differences in religion, have to do anything with that pull towards the west of Ukraine? That um, that like uh, the western side of Ukraine does not relate to the orth orthodox values anymore. Um. Once again, it's a strange thing because I think if you were to write the values and things like that down on paper, they'd be ridiculously similar. Um, I think a lot of it is, and even so, I'm not, I'm not really um, enshrined in the practices of Orthodox or um, Catholic, um, yeah, in their traditions. But I've gone to both regularly throughout my life. Um, and for me, kind of as an outsider, they, they look almost the same. <laughs> like half the time they just speak Latin. There's a lot of standing up, sitting down. Um, it doesn't, I know it means something to the people inside them, but, but I don't think it's enough to say that those differences represent um, a huge, like different world perspective or a different set of values. I think it's an identity thing in the same way in the US we have um, Protestants and Catholics um, where there's, there's so much overlap and there's more overlap than not, but we, we do like to define ourselves by our differences. Um, and I think, I think that was the issue um, with Catholicism 
or yeah, Ukrainian Catholicism and Russian Orthodox. But it is as when you described it like that, you can see like geographically, like if you look at a map and you color it in, like the West was was Ukrainian and Catholic, and the East was like like there's there's definitely something to that, and there are more Russian speakers in the East. And a lot of that comes from during the Soviet Union, the East had um, all the mines and was a wealthy industrial point. So there was a lot of um, Russians actually shipped in to Ukrainian territories to um, as workers um, to, and they stayed there. So that's, so that is their heritage um, in that sense. Okay, okay. So as a student of, in a way, military and all the experience that you've had um, in your degree and in your travels. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Um, what's your perspective on all of this? That's a big question. Um, um, I don't know. Um, I guess one of the, I, personally, I feel like Russia's already lost. Um, regardless of what happens. Um, I think I think this didn't go the way that it was planned at all. And um, and it will never be Russia will never hold Ukraine comfortably. There will always be a massive resistance and it will never have like a puppet government the way it had previously and the way I think it's trying to now. Um, so in that sense, whatever happens, Russia's lost, um, or at least Putin has lost. Um, and uh, as far as uh, I think one of the, the best, I mean, the best, best case scenarios is that they, they just all stop, right? And Russia goes back, but I don't think that is going to happen. I think Russia might grab a hold. The second best, um, just because it stops the immediate conflict, Russia grabs a hold of what it can now, so it'll take it'll take Mariupol as as a claim over an important um, uh, port city, and it'll take the east, um, definitely the Donbass region, and um, and it'll hold those and call that its own victory, and um, and Ukraine will try to carry on with probably a similar level of conflict that it was. Um, before Russia fully invaded. Um, alternatively, Putin does is able to grab Kyiv and replaces the government there and has that. And I think the Ukrainian government will move to Lviv and keep that as its seat of power and run an insurgency through that and carry on another low-level conflict that who knows how long that will go on for. Um, Short of that, um, I know everyone talks about nuclear weapons, but I don't even know how to speculate on that. Yeah, that's yeah. also that's also out of, um, yeah, don't want to talk about that at all. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, yeah. Yes. Um, so I think the last question would be, um, in the last eight years, the economy of Ukraine. Um, so what I've heard is that Ukrainians have developed um, 
their their skills in technology. So it's a lot of web development, a lot of uh, digital services. Do you think that in a way these this whole conflict has in a way changed the mindset of Ukrainians for 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 you guys or for them to become more like digital nomads to know that they you know they don't have a safe country that they have to move all around Europe or the world? Mm, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, very possibly. I know that there's going to be a lot of a lot of people who migrate, um, and I don't know that you call it migrating, um, flee, and and end up um, finding places where they they want to stay. Or, um, but I also I would actually say I think that this has spurred a huge sense of nationalism and pride. And I think if people can go back to Ukraine, if this does end and there's a call for rebuilding, that I think the majority of people will want to, um, just from the sentiment that you seem to be getting from Ukraine now. Um, but I, I think there might even be more of a rootedness there. That said, I think what you were describing might be more accurate for Russia. Um, And I think there's also been a massive diaspora of Russians who are moving out to neighboring countries, um, Finland, Sweden, Uzbekistan. Um, and I think that, that they're, they're realizing how insecure their, their place is in Russia. And even if this all ends, they have no say in the next time something like this happens and they're going to have to face the repercussions for those actions again. Um, I, I think that would potentially be a good motivation to um, to be less rooted to your home country. Um, so this is an that. interesting evolution in these big powers, right? Because I also I've, I've talked to a few Chinese and, and of course I, I know many Americans, and I feel this is the sentiment that being in these huge powers who bully. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, so people are falling out of love with nation states because of this. And uh, yeah, so, for sure. Uh, these uh, there is even a, a new. I think there's a, a new country being formed for people who are using cryptocurrencies, um, that are just like colliding or just bring them um, uh, coming together. And right, there's just digital nomading throughout mm -hmm. the world without having a proper nation state. What do you think about this? I mean, you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like, I feel like I'm pretty floaty. Um, but yeah, but I could definitely see that. And especially now when you, you see how, how fragile the banking system is, um, that the rest of the world goes after your country's banks. like cryptocurrency is starting to look a lot more stable than it ever did. Um, so that, no, and I'm sure it would give a lot of people more freedom. And then, then you do wonder if um, power isn't degrading at the way that I perceive it to be. Um, does, does all of us defecting from these countries allow them greater power? Um, Uh, people power is important, but if the industry is already there and the economy is already established, like how much, 
how much does taking our voices out of those places allow them to be bigger bullies um, or taking our money out of those places? I don't know. I don't know if it's destabilizing or potentially empowering <laughs> to current regimes. That's that's a very interesting point on just geopolitics. And um, I mean, when you think of China, a billion, 400 million people, um, it doesn't, right? You would think that they don't need anyone, right? That they, they can deal yeah. or they can do without. Um, yeah, it, it's very interesting on these on these mind control, right? These brainwashing, all these elements. It's happening right now in Colombia with our elections. We are divided, mm -hmm. very polar, polarized, and move between fear and continuing these very, um, in a way, military uh, um, um, kind of. Um, way of running the country militarized right so um i find it very i'm constantly researching on this and i just find a, a quite a, an interesting video a take on um legalization or regulation of drugs not only weed which is old uh, case now but cocaine right and heroin and um I, i've read about it some time ago but now you know, I have a different view on it. And, and now I realize how conditioned I've been because, you know, yeah. our war has been because it has been a narco war. Um, and now I realize that, wow, you know, we can we can just get rid of this conflict by regulating and move on, right? Uh, but then also, I, I, I think I shared that video with you. Do you think that we all deserve the good life, the American dream, the civilized, uh, neoliberal, and um, democratic, and um, well, yeah, way of living. Do you think that's the end goal for every country? Um, I don't know. I don't know if good life is is the right way to put that. Um, in terms of what I think the, the end goal, I think there are certain standards that need to be met for it to be called a life. Um, and that that should at, at the very least be the end goal. But actually, to be fair, I think it's probably one of the biggest points when you asked before about the difference between Ukraine and Russia and in a cultural sense. I think, I think as much as the culture is, is different and blended i think that might be one of the the bigger differences whereas ukraine there are it's not the west but the freedoms available in ukraine are radically different than those that are available in russia and i think a lot of ukrainians are aware of that and really value that and are not willing to let that go so i think those freedoms have to be at least the ability to speak out against your government to um, express your discontent <laughs> to to be discontent maybe um, is at least fundamental and all countries should that should be a goal I know that's never the goal of, of from the government's perspective I suppose um, but I, I don't know I don't know if you know what happens if we're all prosperous either we already have population issues and all of that, um, 
like it almost seems like we're doomed like we can the world can't all be prosperous so what can your goals be um i don't know i it's it's way too deep <laughs> <laughs> i recommend you a cool video about uh, circular circular economy and how we need to come to a point of thriving right not eternal growth uh, but come to a point of thriving where we learn from nature to mm. yeah, establish a, a point where there is no more need for growth. We can just um, concentrate on um, allowing light to come like the forest, the canopy does. Uh, so it allows everything to flourish and everything to sustain itself. I live here in a natural, in a forest here mm. at, at the farm and I'm constantly trying to observe that and trying to bring that into my life as perspective. Natalie, it has been great having you uh, uh, in our podcast. Uh, how, how did you feel about this interview? <laughs> it was really good. Um, I enjoyed the conversation. I'm nervous I said a bunch of wrong things. So if anyone is <laughs> upset or offended, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I think we were, quite, we were quite neutral, I believe. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I just once again repeat, I don't, I definitely don't speak for Ukrainians. Um, as just my little microcosm of um, perspective. Yeah, and in the Midwest of America, which is also yeah. another microcosm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay. I, I believe um, what I'm going to offer our audience is a chance to maybe write down some questions and, um, or maybe to bring them in for an interaction with you. Maybe they'll have some other interesting takes and questions for you. So if you are available for this, perhaps, um, you know, I'll let you know and see if you, yeah. if you can open up space. I, I mean, I'm just interested in, in discussing these topics at all. Like uh, the more we can talk about it and the more we learn about it, it's always better. So I noticed that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, this is lovely. Big pleasure. Um... Thank you for listening. Gracias por escuchar. Share Keep Talking podcast with a friend who you think would also like it. Let's keep talking every day.